0: So, the account before us is one of a series of three. The Pharisees have made it clear that they are not happy with Jesus, which, of course, is not surprising. They kind of make it plain all the time that they're unhappy with Jesus. And so Jesus is going to address them, and he's done it, and, and there's, this section includes three parables. Remember last week, we looked at the parable of the shepherd. And this is a brief story, but it's important to capture the context. The religious leaders are the ones to whom this parable is addressed. Once again, it's a story. They're asked to enter into the story. They're asked to be a part of the story. You'll recall last week, the story was about the shepherd. He was taking care of a hundred sheep. And when he got to counting them, he only discovered that there were 99 and there was one sheep missing. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, were asked to enter into this story and to imagine themselves being a shepherd. You will recall that in their view, the The occupation of shepherd was about as low on the social totem pole as anybody could possibly get. Kind of like the last thing in the world they want to imagine themselves as a shepherd. And yet that's exactly what Jesus brings to them to get them to think about the fact that this is how God is a shepherd. God is trying to bring the lost to himself. God is pleased when people repent. The Pharisees weren't pleased at all when anybody repented. And now that they have gotten that message and they're just kind of putting that all together and thinking to themselves, what in the world is Jesus doing trying to get us to be shepherds? I mean, is it possible that Jesus could get us to be anything lower than that? And the answer is, in their eyes, yes. In fact, what could possibly be worse than being a shepherd in the mind of the Pharisees? Come to find out it's being a woman. That's in their view. In their world and their culture and their society that they have created, by the way, they are in charge culturally of the society in which they exist. Um, The the Pharisees literally prayed a prayer with regularity. Thank you, Lord, I was not born a Gentile or a woman. That's That's what they thought. This is their perception. This is how they approach life. Like so many things pretty much almost everything in their approach to life, biblically speaking, was wrong. They're just wrong. Their view of women was wrong. It was not the biblical view. It was not God's view. When Jesus says to them, well, there's this woman who lost a coin. Like, oh boy, here here we go. He's giving us another story. And it's not bad enough that he's already tried to get us to be shepherds. Now he wants us to be women. Um, They truly saw women as inferior and and thought, by the way, that they were being biblical when they thought that. Uh, They weren't. They weren't being biblical. And I think it's important that we not fall into any kind of pharisaicalism. And that we look carefully at God's creation of women. I think our own society, need I say, we have a huge segment of our society that thinks all it takes to be a woman is for a man to imagine it. Is that all there is to womanhood? Some guy, you know, just kind of goes, hmm, I think I'll be a woman. And, and that's it? That's all there is to womanhood? There's nothing more to being a woman than a man's imagination. Really? That is just crazy. Women are a unique creation of God. And I think it's essential for us to look at God's perspective on women. And we will get to the parable, by the way. But this is part of the parable. Part of what Jesus is doing is speaking to the Pharisees about women. Imagine that you're a woman. This is exactly what he's saying to them. So I want us to look for just a moment here. Turn back, if you have your Bible, to Genesis chapter 2. And I want us to get a look at this. This is a crucial passage. This is a foundational passage that should transform our thinking about womanhood if we have incorrect thinking. So God is now in chapter 2 where God is going through a little more detail about the creation process. He's he's going into some detail for us. So in verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I am going to make a helper suitable for him. Now, if you've been reading through, if you open up your Bible and you start in Genesis chapter one and you just start reading through the, the seven days. God does this and God saw that it was good and God does this and God saw that it was good and God you know on each day God does things and God sees that they are good and then we come to and if you're just reading along you're just only in chapter two and if you come to this moment you suddenly come to and God saw that it was not good that should cause you to really stop wait a minute this is God God is making his own creation. You're making it. This is your creation. You're the one that's that's putting all of this stuff together. Through the very words of your mouth, you are creating the universe just out of nothing. It's coming into existence. And it's coming into existence exactly like you want it to. And suddenly, on the sixth day, after you've made man, who, by the way, I mean, Adam is perfect. Adam is a perfect specimen of humanity. He's perfect in body. He's perfect in mind. He's the very image of God. Isn't this enough? God actually says, no, it is not good. It is not good that man is alone. So what did God do? Well, the next verse, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to man, to Adam, to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature was its name. So, God, this is really instructive here. The man gives names to all the cattle and the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. God is, before the fall has occurred, God has now taken Adam and said to him, I want you to think, I want you to observe. I want you to look at the world that I have created. I want you to look at how it is, what's going on in it. I'm going to bring all the animals in front of you, and I want you to name them all. But I want you above and beyond that to observe. And Adam does observe. God brings the animals. Adam names the animals. And for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Adam comes to the conclusion, when it's all done here, I have looked at all of the animals that God has created, and of course, it would have just been the kind, so it actually wouldn't have taken all that long. It's the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. He's not naming every fish out there. And he's just got the big kinds, and he names them, and he's like, they're great, they're magnificent. They're, they're majestic. Uh, all of these animals are friendly to Adam. They, they are like pets, they're like your dog. I mean, all of them are just have great affinity for Adam, but none of them are his companion. None of them actually fit who Adam is. And so he realizes it. They weren't actually made in the image of God. They didn't really have self-awareness like Adam did. They didn't explore or contemplate or think about the big plan of God. They just kind of were. They just existed to this day, right? I mean, cats. Cats are really good at being cats. You know, they got that whole slinky thing down, you know, they eat birds. I mean, they're great. You know, they're not so good at at being dogs. They're not good at being porpoises or fish, you know what I mean? But they're really good at being cats. I mean, they're the cat thing. They got it down. Well, they're cats. We can observe cats and we can adopt cat-like behavior. We have a sense of, catness. We get it. Like, oh, you know, if I have to find myself in warfare somewhere, I may adopt like the cat. I may act like a cat. They catch birds. But cats, they don't look at dogs and go, huh, maybe I should act like a dog. I mean, it never crosses their mind. Adam looks at all the animals, and they're all great at being what they are. They're fantastic, but they're not like Adam. He is a different and unique creation of God. He is being called upon by God to stop, contemplate, think about who you are. Think about what's going on here. And Adam does. And Adam concludes, you know, I've looked at all the beasts of the field, and I've named them all, and I've looked at them all, and here's what I've concluded. There is something missing here. God wants Adam to recognize there's something missing, that it's not good. He's got a problem. And God has set this in front of him so that he will seek the answer to the problem. You know, God doesn't always just hit us over the head with a two by four. Sometimes God is, in fact, oftentimes God is subtle. We're made in his image. We're supposed to think. We're supposed to use our brains. We're supposed to seek out the plan and purposes of God. Adam comes to the conclusion, I have a need to fulfill and I can't fulfill it. There is something really missing around here. And I I don't know. Okay, Lord, you know, what are we going to do here? So God says, I'm going to make you a helper, which, by the way, is the English doesn't really grasp this. You know, helpers are kind of, in our vocabulary, that's kind of a, a secondary. Like, you know, you're the boss and you've got a bunch of helpers, okay? That, this is not that kind of a relationship. That's not what's going on. In fact, the Hebrew word used here for helper in much of the rest of the Old Testament is actually applied to God, who helps us. Basically, God provides for us those things we cannot provide for ourselves. When we need help, we go to God. So if Adam is going to fulfill the commands of God to be fruitful and multiply and to rule over all the earth, he realizes, I can't do this without help. And come on, ladies, men need help, right? I mean, it's not like that's a big conclusion. Big for Adam, you know, he actually concludes that. And this is before the fall. So what does God do? Well, God causes a deep sleep, verse 21, to fall upon Adam and he sleeps. And God took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Again, the Hebrew word here for rib is that, you know, God took one of these with the flesh. So it's not just the rib. It's God took the rib and some flesh. Something tells me that Adam looked down and saw, you know, a, a fairly good chunk of his side is taken out of him. It's not like God just, you know, surgically removed one little rib here. God God took a good chunk out of Adam's side. Literally his flesh and his bone. Which, by the way, God now, verse 22, the Lord fashions into a woman the rib which he had taken or the, the, the piece out of Adam's side and brought her to the man. And he exclaims, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Why? Because God has taken my flesh and bone and has fashioned it into this. And the word this is now. that uh, It's this one at last. Finally, this is, this is the answer. This is what I've been looking for. And God brings her to the man, and he looks at her, and it's like, ah, this is the solution. This is the solution to what I've been looking for. God has deliberately brought me to the place where I recognize I have a need. I am incomplete in and of myself, and This is my indispensable companion. This is like my left hand to my right hand. They appear similar, but they're actually very opposite. And so this now completes me. At last, this is the one. And she is unique. She is completely different from him and yet part of him. She is literally his flesh and bone. He should love her and, of course, the command of God and the nature of Adam is such that he should cherish her and love her and take care of her as if she were him because she is him. God literally took part of Adam and made her. And so Adam needs to look at her and will look at her as this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha. The Hebrew word, because she was taken out of Ish. Isha is woman. Ish is man. She should be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. Which, is kind of an interesting Hebrew play on words. There, this is God's view of women. They are indispensable. They are part of the human race. They are. They are. You can't have the human race without the women. In fact, back in chapter 1, you know, God makes everything and it's good and it's good and it's good. And it's not until, because we see here, God says it's not good that man is alone. So it's not until God actually makes woman, God finally declares it's very good. Because it is very good. It finally completes the creation. Adam can now do what he needs to do. Now, Adam was created first. And the woman came along second. Stop and think for a moment how it would have been if these two sentient beings, like, unlike all the other animals who don't have the same kind of image of God's self-awareness that Adam and Eve have. Imagine if, like all the other animals, however, they had you know just suddenly become conscious. And that they now look at one another. And there's... No way to tell who's actually supposed to make the decisions around here. That's not going to go very well, right? I mean, you're going to immediately, even in the Godhead, the son submits to the father. So in order for creation to work, God has put Adam as the head over the whole thing. Eve comes along, and for them to have a good relationship... Someone's got to be in charge of the relationship. Someone, when you come to a fork in the road, somebody's got to be able to make the decision we're going to go right or left. If you, if you don't agree to that, then you don't have a relationship anymore. You just go your separate ways. That may be fine, except for Adam and Eve, that's not going to be fine. And for mankind, that's not going to be fine. If men and women cannot agree to get together and to walk together, then, well, you just have to look at our society, right? What does that look like? Well, it it looks just like our society. Broken homes and the children are are just casualties all over everywhere and people are going through all kinds of divorces and or just not even getting married and not really committed and families are are broken up and you know that that takes a huge toll on society. Growing up in a in a single parent home, uh, it can happen. God is gracious. But in general, it's not a good situation. So you have to have someone in charge of each relationship. This, we live in a military town. Okay, the entire military is built on the idea that we have people with a certain rank who tell people with another rank what to do. I mean, the whole thing is, if you become part of the military, the first thing you agree to is, I'm going to obey the orders given to me. You know, if if your military is filled with a bunch of people who all just do whatever they want, okay, I don't know what you got over there, but you don't have a military. You certainly don't have one that's going to win any awards. You you have to be able to, literally to the death, I mean, if the command is, you're going to go over there and you're going to be under fire and you're going to take that hill over there at whatever cost. If you're like, well, I'm not doing that. Uh, Who does this guy think he is anyway? Okay, if that's your military, don't plan on taking too many hills. In fact, plan on having a lot of your hills taken from you. You have to have submission. You have to agree. We're going to submit. Society. People need to stop at stop signs and red lights. You know, it's, we submit to all kinds of things all the time. Submission is not a terrible word. The fact is, if you're going to have a relationship, and you're going to go through the difficulties of life, and you're going to make it to the end of life, somebody, somebody has got to submit. And... Again, you look at the military, some of of the toughest, most lethal, strongest, macho men, literally, that maybe probably more than any of us actually can imagine, are willingly following someone else's orders. They're willing to bring their skills to bear on our nation's enemies at the orders of someone else. They submit to those orders. These are some of the literally toughest people alive on the planet. They willingly, willingly submit. So, you know, I mean, it's not like submission is this, oh, no one should submit to anything. Okay, you you can't have no one submitting to anything. So God makes Adam first so that Eve is going to follow Adam. That's the plan of God. It's okay. But here's the deal. Adam should be making loving choices that are in his wife's best interest up to and including laying down his own life. That's what Adam is called to do. Adam has clear responsibility here. So the Pharisees, they don't understand any of this. They, they don't get any of this. The society which they have built is one in which women are degraded. They're second-class citizens. Uh, they had a situation where they would just divorce women for any reason under the sun. That, you burnt the toast. That's it. You're gone. I didn't like you anyway. And they just gave them a riddle divorcement and sent them out. It, it, they treated people terribly. Women treated them just awful. This is not the plan of God. This is not how God set this up. This isn't how this is supposed to go. In fact, when they come to Jesus and say, well, why did Moses give a rid of divorce? When he says to them, for the hardness of your heart. But from the beginning, it was not so. This is not how this is supposed to go. Better to divorce your wife than kill her, which literally is what Jesus is talking about, the hardness of your heart. But do your best to reconcile, to resolve your differences. So the Pharisees are just completely, one more time, one more issue, one more thing, they have no understanding of God's actual plan. And so Jesus says to them, imagine there is a woman. I need you to put yourself in the place of a woman. If you like a more modern analogy, this would be like going to southern slave owners and saying, now imagine you're a slave. Okay. You know, the last thing they wanted to do was imagine they were slaves. They actually should have spent a lot more time imagining being slaves and maybe they'd have gotten rid of slavery much sooner. Maybe they might not have had slaves at all. I mean, it would have been humiliating. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's exactly right. Would you please put yourself in the place of the people you're humiliating? Maybe you'll stop humiliating them. So Jesus brings this up, and this is deliberate. He's already said, imagine you're a shepherd. That was offensive. Now let's imagine you're a woman. To the Pharisees, that too is offensive. Just wait. He's going to just wait till the next one next week. So actual to the parable here. What woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? Coins. She's got a silver coin. It's, uh, this is a... We are very um, familiar with coins and use them without really thinking about it. It's quite possible some of you, many of you, have coins kicking around in your pocket even now or in a jar at home. and you know, We don't think too much about it. I mean, you know who in the world's image is on the penny, nickel, and quarter dime? You know, do, could we actually name that? Probably. Does it really mean anything to us? Not much. Uh, you know nice trivia question. Okay, for the Jews, it was a problem. It was a problem because God said to them, don't make any graven images. So those coins, you know what they have on them, images. They would look at our coins, Jefferson, Washington, Lincoln, they would look at those things and go, oh, that's idolatry. Don't give us any of those. That, that's idolatry. God commanded not to make any graven images. And you've clearly gravened an image of a man onto your coin. We, get, get rid of those things. We don't want them in our house. Now, the problem was, of course, that they were unable to carry that out now in the society in which they exist. They are conquered by the Romans, and the Romans used both Roman and Greek money. And so there was, there was all kind of, and, and of course the Romans, Jesus says, remember he, he confronts the Pharisees, And they're like, should we pay taxes? And he says to them, "Uh, anybody got a Roman coin here? And you can imagine that there were like, I mean, they hated to pull those things out, but of course they had them. You had to have them or you couldn't carry out commerce in the Roman Empire. So they pull them out and Jesus is like, okay, whose image is on that? Caesar's, of course. (laughs) That's, That's why it's so powerful when he says to them, well, just render to Caesars what Caesars got his image on it. You don't like it anyway. Give him his money back. Who cares? And render to God what is God's. And they would have known that they were all made in the image of God. So this woman now, she's got 10 silver coins. And so she. where did she get these coins from? It It, it doesn't actually say, but we can assume... Uh, She probably, again, the text is not clear on this, so we're speculating here some. She may very well have gotten them as her dowry. Uh, A dowry in the ancient world, when you were a woman and, and you were going to, some man came along and wanted to marry you, he would have to pay your father a dowry. So that was a sum of money. Your father... If he were wise and loved you as his daughter, once you got married, he would give the dowry back to you so that you would have a certain level of financial independence. This is the Proverbs 31 woman. Where did the Proverbs 31 woman get all this wealth from? Well, chances are pretty good that part of it came initially from her dowry. Uh, This is how the ancient world worked. Women had a certain measure of financial independence. And so it, it wouldn't have been unusual for her to have these coins. Remember, remember Jacob's wives, Rachel and Leah? And remember when it came time to go, uh, he says to them, you know, ladies, we got we to gotta get out of here. They're like, well, do we have any portion of inheritance or inheritance in our father's house? I mean, aren't we reckoned by him as foreigners? He sold us and consumed our entire purchase price. They're talking about their dowry. Jacob worked seven years for each of those girls. his father-in-law should have given them the seven years of labor that Jacob put in for them. And they're like, he hasn't given us anything. You want to go, let's get out of here. we're we're ready to go. So chances are, and again, we're not positive positive. I'm saying this with authority, but it's possible that this woman is a 10 silver piece bride. She's, you know, and by the way, this particular piece of silver, This is worth about, interestingly enough, the price of a lamb. You could buy a lamb for one silver piece. So the the Greek word that's used here. So she, and remember last week we looked at the average shepherd would have 10 sheep. And they bring them all together at night, which is why the guy had the 99. One shepherd would not own 99 sheep without a lot of help. Uh, but an average shepherd would have 10 sheep. So she's basically got an entire herd of sheep. That's what she was worth, 10 silver pieces. So, all right, so what, what would you do with your dowry? What was it customary to do? How did she go about losing this? Well, remember in the ancient world, it's not like they had banks. You could go put your money in and be guaranteed to get them back this were, eh, that was a risky endeavor. Uh, you could bury it in a hole in the ground somewhere, maybe. But your best, someone could come along and dig it up or you're gone. Your best bet is to actually keep it on your person. So it was customary for women to actually put their coins in their hair. It would be something to show, hey, <clears throat> I'm a 10 silver coin lady. And, you know, it was. and you'd know where it was. You wouldn't have to worry about losing it. Maybe. Come to find out maybe you could lose it. Maybe you get to counting the coins in your hair and discover that, oh no, you know, one of my ponytails or whatever, you know, I put it on the end as a decoration and now it came untied and, oh no, I've only got nine coins. And so I've lost one of them. This is a big loss. This is a tenth of her wealth. If she had herd of sheep, this is like losing one sheep. That's the value of the coin. So what does she do? Well, of course, she lights a lamp and she sweeps the house and she searches carefully until she finds it. Uh, remembering that in the ancient world their houses were stone or or brick or mud and they'd be dark even in the middle of daylight. So you'd have to get a lamp and get out your little brush, you know, and start brushing around and you know everybody walked on the dirt dirt roads, you know, so there's plenty of dirt and dust around here and and there's cracks in the floor and furniture and she's until she finds it. She hunts until she finds this. She's determined. And when she found it, verse 9, she calls together her friends and her neighbors and says, rejoice of me, I have found the coin which I lost. Now, I only got 10 of them. They're pretty valuable each. And, you know, if she's wearing them in her hair as her dowry, I mean, everybody knows she's the 10 silver coin lady. So, you know, that she's lost one of them is going to be an issue. And I want you to get together with me and rejoice in this coin. I I lost it and now I've found it. And just like he did in the first parable, Jesus now looks at the Pharisees and says to them, plain as day, in the same way, just as a woman would rejoice In the finding of her coin, so God rejoices. Jesus has no problem likening God to a woman in this context. It's okay. Just as she is going to rejoice, so God will rejoice over what? I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Here's the thing the Pharisees didn't care if sinners repented. They didn't want to get near the sinners. They didn't want to talk to the sinners. They didn't have any joy in their heart when they went and watched John, who got up and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And all kinds of people came down into the Jordan and actually got baptized repenting. They didn't think that was a great thing. They didn't rejoice in that. They weren't happy about that. And by the way, there was no way on the planet they were going to walk down there and humble themselves and have John baptize them. Not doing it. And then they claimed to be God's representative on earth. You don't represent God on earth, guys. Your heart is not where God's heart is. You are not rejoicing in what God rejoices in. You have wrong views of shepherds, which by the way, God has an exalted view of shepherds. And the angels first appeared to the shepherds. The resurrected Jesus first appeared to a woman. You know, God has a completely different view than these Pharisees do about shepherds and women. And Jesus is trying to kindly come to them and help them think this through. You guys make this big show about how you're somehow the authority on who God is and how God acts and what God wants. And Jesus is like, I'm trying to tell you guys, God is thrilled. There is is joy in the presence of God. By the way, if you read that verse carefully, you might think it's the angels that are producing the joy. It's actually not. Look at it. Look at it carefully. There's joy in the presence of God, and the angels are sharing in the joy, but the joy is actually generated by God. Everybody's sharing in it. It's God that's generating it. These guys, that, they claim to represent God, but when the sinners repent, they're not happy. In fact, they're unhappy. Whenever any of Jesus' disciples baptize anybody, they're, they're more mad than ever. So Jesus is trying to help them. Look and see, guys, the heart of God is one of mercy. It's one of compassion. It's a desire to bring sinners to himself. And look at you guys. You claim to be the oh great, so holy and righteous, religious people. And you you hate the things God loves. And love the things God hates. You're proud condescending, judgmental, hypocritical, which Jesus reminds them of with regularity, because they are. It's like, this is not who God is. God is kind, compassionate, forgiving. And so we should be. And by the way, we should be clear and share the message of who God is. The devil's great lie is to make God look bad make submission look terrible. Ah, why submit to their husbands? Oh, the world would say such a thing. This is awful. Okay, it's not. It's not. If you don't don't work that out in your relationship, you are going to have a tough relationship. Not going to go well. You have to resolve that issue. And God has resolved it for you, by the way. So, The devil continuously lies about who God is and how God acts. And Jesus comes and says, I'm trying to help you see God loves sinners. God wants sinners to repent. But you have to be humble. And that's the Pharisees' problem. They will not humble themselves. They will not admit that they need repentance. They're not going to be like shepherds. And they're certainly not going to be like women. They are not not entering in any kind of humble relationship that is going to put them in a place where they need to admit guilt and wrongdoing. That's why the kingdom of God is so far away from them. Only the humble, only when we become like little children, do we enter into the kingdom. We admit that we are sinners. And we come and thank God for sending his son for us. That's it. And it does require humility. Otherwise, you don't get in. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your compassion. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God who continuously offers forgiveness, mercy, grace. You let the sun shine on the evil as well as the good. You send the rain not just on the just, but the unjust. You send your mercy and your love. And your offer of forgiveness to your avowed enemies who hate you. If they will simply repent, full forgiveness. Thank you for being such a God. Thank you for loving us. May we have the boldness and the wisdom to share this with all the world. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.